Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. Just to kind of give you a recap of what we talked about last week, because this is just one continuous um, conversation. Jesus was just talking about last week about the day and the hour that he returns, how it would be unknown, um, how we had to stay ready, and then he gives a number of parables concerning that topic. Um, And the first one is the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of ten maidens, ten handmaidens. And it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Uh, Many of us might be familiar with this passage. um, And it kind of would seem, as sometimes parables do, like an Aesop's fable, um, the story of the ten uh, maidens or the ten virgins. But this story is an example Um, taken from the everyday lives of the Jews, and they would be aware of the intricacies that are involved in this example that we might miss because our marriage culture, um, our celebrations are a bit different in Western culture. And I think we could err by overanalyzing each of these elements um, and make them into something they're not. Um, Because I've I've seen this in my studies. I've seen sometimes you look really hard into it and come up with all these things. Um, But we have to remember always that when Jesus was talking, he wanted people to be able to understand. He he wanted them to be able to understand the meaning behind it. He never told a story and said, now go study and you will further understand. You you will begin to understand what I said. It was always able, he always made it um, simple so people could understand. He wanted everyone listening to understand what he was saying. Um, So we aren't going to overanalyze this. But that doesn't mean it's going to be short, so don't get excited. Um, but throughout the Bible, um, our relationship with God is illustrated um, as a covenant, as a marriage. The church is called the bride of Christ. So we can look at this parable through the lens of what Jesus has said before concerning this same topic. And throughout the Bible, this, this concept of marriage, this covenant of marriage. So we're going to look at this through a cultural lens um, and, and see the consistencies of this story with the message of Jesus to bring out all the truth that, he, that they're understanding. So first we have to talk about Jewish betrothals. Um, the fathers worked out the agreement um, for the engagement. The bride and groom typically had nothing to do with it. Um, and when they were officially betrothed, they were legally married. Um, but the relationship was not consummated yet. Um, now, there was such a thing as um, promise rings, 
that a boy would give to a girl in seventh or eighth grade to ensure everyone knew that they were going steady. Um, just kidding, that's not real. Um, <laughs> but when, once they were betrothed, they were officially married, um, but they had not consummated the marriage yet. And we can see an example of this situation working out as it does in the beginning of Matthew, in Matthew 1, 18 through 19. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, consummated the marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So sometimes, and I've seen people who don't understand this passage because it's like, wait a minute, they were betrothed, but they hadn't come together, but he has to divorce her. That doesn't make sense. Um, but now that I've explained how the betrothal work, it explains this passage. It brings out a truth to this passage. They were pledged. They had not consummated the marriage, but uh, one or both parties could end the agreement, could end the betrothal, but they would have had to divorce to break that agreement. They would have had a, to come to a le legal arrangement to break that legally binding arrangement. Um, and we can see that working out in that scripture in Matthew. So the bride and groom, they're betrothed, uh, it's legally binding as marriage, but they haven't consummated the marriage yet. Um, and in many cultures at that time, the bride's father would pay the groom's father. But in Jewish culture, the groom's father paid a bride price to the bride's family. And that was called a, a mohar. And then during the time of engagement, the husband would leave to go prepare their home. And this could take a year or more while he prepared the home. And the time that he was away was determined by his father, by the groom's father. But before he goes, almost as a promise to return, he'll leave a gift, a matan, M-A-T-T-A-N. And then the bride would go prepare herself for the return of the groom. And after this extended length of time, the groom would return uh, to get his bride. It would be a year or more. And he would come back at any time. And one of the things that... Um, was explained throughout Jewish culture, and this makes tons of sense when you get a bunch of guys together. They would off the groom and, the, and his party would like to come back in the middle of the night and catch the bridal party sleeping, right? And if you've ever seen a wedding party where there's a bunch of guys and like they come up with their entrance or what they're gonna do, you can totally imagine, of course, the groom's party wants to come back in the middle of the night and be like, oh, they're sleeping, ah. And so this is what they would typically do they would come back in the middle of the night, but the groom was required to send a man ahead to announce his coming, and they would shout, uh, the bridegroom is coming, or there would be a trumpet blast to announce the groom was coming, because you really don't want to, like, wake him up, right, because the bride's going to be pretty upset with you if, like, you know, just imagine if, like, before you see your husband on that first day, you're, like, just waking up. You're like, oh, God, I got sleep in my eye, right? Um, girls don't get sleep in their eye, just so you know, just guys. Um, but an important, another thing that's important to note before we get into the meaning of all these things is that no one was allowed on the streets after dark without a lighted lamp or a torch. And often uh, the people that were invited were identified because they had a light or a torch. And those without lights were assumed to be party crashers. And then the, bride, um, the bridal party would be taken to the house of the groom. The bride and groom did not go away on a honeymoon uh, they would host the party at their house for a week 
um, in this new house that the, or, that the groom had prepared. And so let's look at these elements. We have the bride and the groom. And so I know, I know some of these can be obvious to us what they are, especially if we're, we've been a Christian for a while. We know Christianese, um, but we don't necessarily know why or what it means. And for someone who's just um, getting into, yeah, you know, I mean, you can be Christian for a long time and not really read the Bible. Um, so we're going to look at the Bible to explain why, why Christians say the bride and the groom. And we're going to start out with one of my favorite passages in the Bible. This is my life verse. Um, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Just kidding. Uh, I'm not kidding about the verse. Uh, but wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So you see, throughout this example, the husband is Christ and the wife is the church, explained. So that's why they're the bride and the groom. So now here we can see how that's established. And we probably already knew that Jesus uh, was the groom and the church was the bride, but that kind of sets it as fact. So God is obviously the father. If Jesus is a groom, God is obviously the father. Um, so the handmaidens, and it may say in your Bible, 10 virgins, um, which isn't really to let us know their sexual status, um, but it, it's, it's a given in their time that a maiden would be a virgin. We interpret it like, oh, that way, but it was given in their time. Um, they're the ones who are there to help prepare the bride for the coming of the groom. The handmaidens prepare the bride for the coming of the groom. So the church, if the church is the bride of Christ, who are the handmaidens? Well, the church is the body of Christ. So if you look in Ephesians 1, 22, 23, it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. So here we see the church is called the body, right? So if we look in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, it says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Us being the parts with different giftings, different talents, performing different things. And he really goes into like that there, but that's not our purpose today. So the church on the whole, the, the global church is the bride. 
But the church is prepared for his coming by each of us, a part of the body. We are preparing the church. We are preparing the bride. So the church, on the whole, we are the bride, but we are also the handmaidens with the responsibility to prepare the bride for the coming of Christ, to prepare the church for the coming of Christ. So God, the Father, decided on the bride price to be paid. The groom's father decided on the price to be paid, which could only be himself through his son. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Acts 20, 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So we can see that God paid the bride price for us, for the bride. So now, if you would, and this is pretty much all today is. We're just reading scripture, which is lovely, um, because I just love God explaining stuff rather than me. Um, well, I hope God's explaining through me. Otherwise, y'all should leave. Um, if you turn to John 14, um, this whole thing pretty much lays this out. But I couldn't just read that to you because I have to take up a good amount of time for it to be a good sermon. I usually try to go 45 minutes to an hour. How have I been doing? Oh, good. <laughs> You've been doing great. They've all been long. All right. So, so in John 14, 1 through 3, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So we see the bride price has been paid. The groom has gone away to prepare a place, but he has left behind a gift, a matan, for us in the meantime. And that's in John 14, 25 through 26. It says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So he says, I must go away to leave you with this gift. I have to go away so the Holy Spirit, the advocate, can come and teach you. So the Holy Spirit is the Matan. And the, these, these disciples, this Jewish audience, when they're hearing the story, they're understanding what is what. Okay? They don't really understand the Holy Spirit yet. They're just like, hey, well, what's, what, what does that mean? What we, we know what you're saying in terms of the marriage, but Jesus hasn't gone away yet. He hasn't left the gift yet. But it's, just, it's just wonderful how God reveals what he's going to do before he does it. Right? I mean, if they had truly understood prophecy, 
100%, they could have read into this and seen exactly what God was going to do. But like I said before, it's impossible to understand 100% what um, pro- interpret prophecy. So the groom has gone away and left his gift with us until he returns, which is the time designated by, his, by the groom's father, God himself, which Jesus told us in the last chapter when he said, even I do not know when I will return, but only the father. Jesus says that even I do not know when I will return, but only the father. Um, and, and some people use that as like, oh, well, then that means Jesus is not the same as God because it, and um, like that means he's just a prophet because he doesn't he doesn't know. But like I said before, Jesus chooses not to know. He, he is doing as the father wishes. And so he, even he doesn't know when he will return, but only the father. And so we, the church, wait on him as the bride and the bridesmaids. We await his return. But he has delayed and taken more time than is expected. And when this happens in the story, it says the bridal party falls asleep. But... The entire bridal party fell asleep, the wise ones and the foolish ones. So we could really get into, well, everyone fell asleep. This just means it took, he took so long that when he came, it came as a surprise. It was unexpected, which it will come no matter how much the world looks like he's coming. The moment he comes, it will be a surprise. Um, but when they hear that the bridegroom has returned, they wake up and they trim their lamps but five don't have enough oil. And so they asked for some from those who brought enough. But the other five refused as they wouldn't have enough for themselves. And so they go out to buy more, which they're able to procure some. They're able to get some oil. But when they arrive at the party, the gates are shut and they plead to be let in, crying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he says, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know you. The end of this parable should be concerning. And it should be concerning partly because of what they say to him. They say, Lord, Lord, which which the Jews would have interpreted this thing as Adonai, Adonai. This isn't just like, hey, dude, hey, groom, hey, guy, I barely know. They say, Lord, Lord. They acknowledge him as Lord, Open the door for us. And he says, I don't know you. That, that's concerning. What is he teaching the disciples? What is he warning them about? I, if I was a disciple sitting there and, you know, consider myself a disciple now, would say, well, I would say, Lord, Lord. I would say, Lord, Lord. I call him Lord. What does that mean for me? I, what does that mean for me? And Jesus isn't teaching anything new. Though I know Jesus basically just teaches love and and washes others' feet. Jesus is all about washing feet, you guys. Washing everybody's feet. You know why? Because he gets us. And now I know who watched the Super Bowl. Uh, But this is, this, what he's saying here, is consistent with what he said before. We've heard, and we've heard this before. In Matthew 7, 21, 23, he says, Jesus says, these is red letters, okay? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, many will say to me, not just five handmaidens, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and listen to what they say. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? They have the things they have done in the name of Jesus, I would say is quite the resume compared to what I have done, compared to what we have done. I can't come with that resume. Have I not done all these things? I, 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 like so much so that I feel like I could tell God, I haven't done this just once or twice. I've done this a lot. Done these things quite a bit. And I did them in your name. And then he says to them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not like, hey, I know, I'm so sorry. I wanted you to come in. I did. But he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They ran out of something. They ran out of oil. And as a Christian, as someone who wants to please God, who doesn't want this to happen, we should know what that oil is. And we should make sure we do not run out of that oil so that we have this fire. But what is this oil? And I've seen some interpretations a lot, um, most, that say the oil is works. And, but I, I don't find this consistent with the teachings of Jesus. That is just works. You, you need more works. You need, to boop, 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 boop. you need to fill that lamp up. And they use an earlier verse to support it. Matthew 5, 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, it's important. We do need to remember this verse based on the light because it's talking about light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's the verse they say. That shows... When it says, let people see your good deeds, and it's also saying, let people see your light. It's saying that the oil is works, but it doesn't say oil. It says light, and that's important because light comes from the oil. Light is the product of the oil. Light is the finished product. Light is what comes from the action. Light is produced. Okay, so let's look for some, uh, but if we look at Proverbs 13, 9, and, and we have to look at, and I know that like you're doing this like week to week, but if you remember what we've been talking about, Jesus has been talking a lot about wickedness. He's been talking about love growing cold, and that's consistent throughout the Bible. And so in Proverbs 13, 9, it says, the light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. So having no light is compared to wickedness, right? So 
if we look back to chapter 24, which is the beginning of this conversation that he's now continuing, Jesus says in verse 12, he says, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And here we see again, wickedness increases, love grows cold. So how do we know if our love has grown cold? I wish he told us, wish there was a verse that said, if you love me, do this. And then we could just look, right? Wouldn't that be great, guys? If like your wife said, if you love me, do these things. You'd be like, check, check, check. Or it might at first you'd be like, uh, uh, I do that. Uh. Um, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. And we see in the last section, as he's talking about wickedness increasing and love growing cold, he's talking, he talks about, and there will be lawlessness, which we said means that not like, like um, the laws of man, because we don't abide by the laws of man. Just because something's legal in the eyes of man doesn't mean it's legal for the follower of Christ. Amen? Amen, especially now. Okay, so when it's talking about lawlessness, it's talking about the lack of God's law, a, la- a lack of people following God's law, So there's a lack of people following God's law. There's an increase of wickedness, and love is growing cold. If you love me, keep my commands. If we truly love God, the evidence will be the obedience to his words and his commands. And not just, we're not just talking about like the Ten Commandments, we're talking about the commissions that Jesus gave us, right? Loving the Lord your God, the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, body, soul, and strength. It's the precursor. It's the foundation. We have to love God first. And that's the foundation that loving your neighbor as yourself is built upon. So if we love God with all that we are, we, we naturally do what he says because we want to please him. And so we love our neighbor as ourselves. And not just that. But we, and we're talking about love here because we're talking about what this light and this oil is. So as we love him, it translates to love for the world. Because as we become more like him, we want to do what he wants to do. We love the people that he loves. We're seeking the people he is seeking. So when we love God, we love people and we point people to Jesus who is the light of the world. So the oil that produces these, this love for others is our love for God. If our love grows cold, our light grows, goes out. Love grows cold, our, our light goes out. It's present or not, and it's evidenced by our obedience. If our love grows cold, our lamp goes out. Look, Jesus said it himself, and we don't like to say this in the church, but Jesus said it himself. In Matthew seven twenty. you will know my people by their fruit. Jesus says, this is crazy, I can't believe he said this. He said, look around at the people who claim to be mine, and you will know who is.
by the fruit. You will know who is by the way they treat people. You will know who is mine by the way they forgive people. You will know who is mine by the way they act. The things they do, are they keeping my commands? It's not judgment. It's not judgment. It's discernment. Because Jesus said, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. I don't know how many times he says it. Be on the lookout. And it's like, well, I just, I just don't want to be judgmental. Just don't want to be judgmental. What? Yeah, I've seen them do lots of stuff that's bad. But who am I? Who am I? I do bad things. I'm a sinner. So I just do what they say. We're all sinners here. Right? A guy told me that, and he talked just like that. No. Um, we'll know them by their fruit. Which means... We will know by our fruit. This isn't just about looking out and like, well, let's see what their fruit is. What's our fruit? We can get really caught up in, well, they're not producing any fruit. And someone can look right back at you and be like, man, that tree's been barren for a long time. Not seeing that fruit. So in this passage, there are more warnings. Jesus, we have to take note of this. Before he goes to the cross, he leaves warning after warning after warning after warning. And it's the things we don't cover because we don't like it. We don't like the truth that he's bringing out, the things that we have to adhere to, but he's warning us. And the warnings here that he gives are, you cannot put me off. You can't put it off. Nothing in life is so important. Nothing in life is so important as God. But we have decided as Christians, because he has delayed, that it can wait till later. It can wait till later. I've been in too many churches where I've heard countless, countless parents, Christians who are okay with like their kids just like, yeah, they're just sowing their oats. They're learning. They're just doing their thing. They're just, yeah, it's great. You know, it's college, you know, and, and we're okay. Like eventually they'll come around. Eventually they're going to serve God and we do it ourselves. Eventually I'm going to, eventually I'm going to serve God right on my deathbed. He can have all of me. Eventually, it will come. Eventually. But that's not what Jesus teaches. In fact, the disciples are younger than all of us. September. So you can dilly-dally for a few more years. No, I'm just kidding. God doesn't say anything about when you're older. When you're done doing that. When you're done doing what you want to do. Go ahead and serve me. And I have people who I've loved dearly who put it off. I put it off. I can't sit here and say, you hypocrites, you pagans. I put it off like it was something that could be put off. And I knew it was not something that could be put off. And for us in the church here, even though we may not like it, we know that we know that we know it cannot be can't be put off if jesus comes back while we're young there will be many people left knocking on the door if only i had more time to go get that oil but here's our responsibility as a church we cannot mislead people into thinking there is more time and i'm not he's talking preaching gloom and doom here but it is everything it is all there is. Either, either this is the truth or it's, or it's a lie. There's no in between. 
It's everything or it's nothing. And there's too many people here. And if you're here, it's nothing. We prove by our actions. We prove by our faith that this is nothing. And Jesus knows. Jesus is like, man, this is nothing to them. But they said that prayer. Remember they said that prayer? They said a prayer in like first grade, right? Jesus knows. Nothing is more important. And listen, when kids play sports or they get an interest, we run around like mad to ensure they get to do it, to ensure they get their, to, they, they get their spot, their chance. And we don't let them quit. I wasn't able to quit sports, right? I played football, surprising. I know, started out as a wide receiver like I envisioned. There were lots of injuries. I ended up as right guard. Football was not fun for me. I was 140 in high school. Okay, I got knocked over. You know what happens when you get knocked over as a right guard? The whole team's like, get your man. You're like, that man is 300 pounds. That man drinks fat and then takes X-lax before weigh-in, bro. <laughs> right? Oh, sports people are like, oh, yeah, the X-lax before weigh-in. And we make these, we, we try to show them, well, you can't quit. We got to show you what commitment is. And we're okay with all these earthly commitments, but not godly commitment. There are people who, who are more committed to their daily workout routine than getting in the Bible. Because I don't got five minutes a day. I don't even have five minutes to read the Bible. I got to get up. I got to run five miles. Got to get ready. Right? But we, have, we, but we got that 45 minutes to work out. Working out is not of God. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But seriously, we have these things. We're like, I'm committed to this. I'm, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to this. We want to teach people commitment to everything but God. God always comes last. The other thing, the other warning here is you can't borrow a relationship with God. It doesn't come with, it doesn't, you can't say, I went to a church that was a good church. I, I have friends that know you. I have a pastor who knows you. This doesn't work like the world where God's like at the door like, well, who do you know? Do you know anybody in here? Well, I'm going to talk to him, see if he knows you, see if he gives you, the, gives you a good word and will let you in, right? It's not enough to be in relationship with someone who's a good Christian. You have to seek God's face on your own. You have to seek God's face on your own. You have to be in God's word on your own. You have to love him yourself. And the only way you come to love him is first by accepting him, by getting his Holy Spirit who will guide you. And listen, we can, we can snuff out the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit by not listening to what he says. You know, you've gotten saved and, and, and you hear something, you should stop doing this. And you're like, man. And then, and then the farther you go, it, that voice gets quieter. It's like, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And we quench the Holy Spirit. We do not listen to what he says because we don't like what he's saying when God has given him a gift so that we might go to the wedding. A helper to guide us here on earth. Relationship with God has to be ours because everyone's gonna stand before God alone. I will stand before God alone. But this isn't meant to scare you. This isn't meant, this isn't like, you know, camp where we're like, everyone's going to go to hell. If you want to accept Jesus, just come on up right now. God, we had 150 kids get saved. Praise God. They were terrified. Are any of them walking with Jesus? No. But for that moment, we got them. This isn't to scare you. 
but it scares me. For Jesus to say, I never knew you. This isn't to guilt you. This isn't to guilt you. And Jesus isn't saying this to, to guilt people, to scare people. He is saying it because he wants you there. Because he wants you there at the feast. Because you've been invited and he wants to make sure that you arrive. And I want to make sure that you arrive. And so we say things that don't feel good. But Jesus wants you there. He wants you to go to the feast. He wants you to go to the celebration that's talked about in Revelation 19. Which I didn't bookmark, but it's at the end, so... Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He said, these are the true words of God. So we've been invited to the wedding and Jesus came to show us the way. And he's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the father but through him. No one gets to the groom's father's house unless the groom himself leads us there, provides a way. He is the only way. Because when he comes, he, he get, comes to get the bride to take her to his father's house, not as a guest. When the bride goes into his father's house, they are part of the family. They become part of the family. That's why we're called heirs, brothers and sisters of Christ. Because when he comes to get us and when we go to the father's house, we become part of the family. Jesus is saying, I want you to be part of the family. I want you at the feast. But we've forsaken our first love. And if you read Revelation and you read the letter to each of the churches, it's like, you've done these things. You've done these works. You have, and I love you for it. But what you don't do is love me like you once did. Revelation 2.4, you have forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. The things you did at first. I'll admit, I often don't do the things I did at first. I don't. In some, in some ways, I don't have time. I used to sit in my apartment and worship God, just me and my guitar. If I do that now, I'm singing over some of the things my kids are trying to do, and it's really annoying. I'm not that great of a singer. I should shut up. They don't say those words. That's the S word. It's not in our house. Unless I say it when I'm angry. But do we do the things we did at first? That's what Jesus constantly says. That's what, that's what is revealed in Revelation to the churches. You do these things. You do that. You do that. But what you don't do, what I, how he says, what I have against you, is you don't love me like you once did, which implies they once did. He says, return to your first love. Return to your first love. You can't just do works. 
We can't just do things in the community. We should. They should be natural. They should, it should naturally come out of our love, but we can't just do them. We can't just do things. We have to love him like we once did. And you know the beauty of it? He still loves us like a first love. His love for us doesn't wane. He's just as excited when we come to talk to him as on the first day. Are we as excited to talk to him as we were on the first day? Because he is. He is. We are still his first love. And that's difficult for us to understand because we don't see love that way on this earth. But he loves us each like a first love. And we have to love him the same way. We have to return to our first love. Lord, I just pray that you would help us, help us, help us, Lord. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your guidance, Lord, to have light at all. You made it so we could have light. We cannot, we could not achieve righteousness without you. And you provided a way for righteousness and you provided your word that we might know the way, Lord. And, and we don't always follow. I just want everyone to take a minute right now because it's not about me. It's not what I pray over us. Each one has to come to terms with God on his own. Just sit with him right now. And if you've lost that first love, repent of it. His forgiveness is quick. His, his forgiveness is complete. Just take a minute right now and talk to him yourself, just you and him. I just thank you for your love. I thank you for the way you love us, Lord. I just pray that this would be on our hearts, Lord. Not just this week as we think about the message, but throughout our lives, that we can continue to assess where are we with our Father? How do we love you more? Help us to obey your commands, Lord. Return our love to a first love. And thank you that you always love us the same. You always love us with that same passion. And may we love you in the same way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.